0: All right. All right. Good morning, beautiful people. This is the Michael Slate Show. Welcome. Uh, my name is Sansara Taylor. I'm your guest host again this week. Here today at the Michael Slate Show, um, Henry and I went through the uh, Michael Slate archives, some of the extraordinary programming, the interviews, the films, the art, the history, the uh, political analysis that Michael Slate brings you every week. And we have some highlights we're going to share with you as we... Uh, digging in the crates a little bit. We're bringing back some of the best of. And what we're going to do to start us off is we're going to go back to uh, 2013 when the film came out, a very important film that was exhibited at the Sundance Film Festival where Michael Slate was, and he did interviews, um, called Who is Dayani Cristal? And the film and the interview that Michael did reference a situation on the U.S. southern border. With the situation of immigrants, which has really only gotten even more deadly and even more critical through the Trump years and continuing and about to intensify with the ending of uh, Title 42 within days towards the end of this year, about to intensify under President Biden. So this documentary... um, That Michael Slate featured and did an interview with the filmmaker really was on the leading edge exposing what was happening. It still is very relevant. It's available on Vimeo, on YouTube, Amazon Prime, or can be purchased through the film's website. So let's listen to Michael uh, set it up and we'll play a little bit of that interview for you.
1: Deep in the sun-blistered Sonora Desert beneath a cicada tree, Arizona Border Police discovered a decomposing male body. Lifting a tattered T-shirt, they exposed a tattoo that reads "Diani Cristal. Who is this person? What brought him here? How did he die? And who or what is Diani Cristal? Following a team of dedicated staff from the Pima County Morgue in Arizona, Director Mark Silver seeks to answer these questions and give this anonymous man an identity. As the forensic investigation unfolds, actor and activist Gael Garcia Bernal retraces this man's steps along the migrant trail in Central America. Joining us to talk about all this today is Mark Silver, the director of the film, and Robin Reinecke, a cultural anthropologist who appears in the film, and she's executive director of the Calibri Center for Human Rights. And I'm really happy to have both of them on the show today. Folks, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay. I think what I'll do is I'll start with you, Mark. I wanted, you know, as I said, I've watched this film, I saw it at Sundance, I've seen it two more times since then, and... I'm always very, very moved by this, and it's you, and know, I want to make sure that it gets out to the biggest audience possible. What compelled you to make this film?
2: Well, what happened originally was about five years ago in London, we launched a website that asked people to send in stories of resistance against wars and division between rich and poor and economic barriers. And one of the most compelling things that we read on the site was this story of unidentified skulls and skeletons being found in this epic desert landscape. And we saw an image of one of the uh, search and rescue police holding a skull and from that point, we asked ourselves: I wonder what um, a skull can reveal to you about the bigger systemic issues of uh, migration and economics.
1: Now, this film—I mean, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's very heavy because it's unique in a lot of different ways. But something that it really captures is what's at the heart of life for millions of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. today. That, in some ways, in many ways, in most ways, they're forced to live an almost invisible existence inside the U.S., while at the same time, they're everywhere. I mean, anything you see that needs to be done, anything that involves the basic functioning of society, invariably, you're going to find a work team of immigrants doing it, and a lot of them oftentimes undocumented. How did that contradiction play out in your head?
2: To be honest, we wanted to focus more on the, the journey that people make and the dangers of the border and how the border was designed to actually be dangerous. So our version of looking at the invisibility issue was more about the invisibility of the dead. It's obviously an, an epic human rights issue, and particularly at the moment where the immigration reform bill or compensation seems to be discussing this kind of trade-off between the giving documentation to 12 million people, but only if we increase security and surveillance, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at the border. And we felt that the part that was missing from that conversation and hence invisible was the fact that there's a direct relationship between increased border security and the number of deaths on the border that was the thing that we wanted to bring visibility to
1: hmm It must be a fairly heavy thing to, one, try and find out the, the way into that story, though, because it's sort of like, you know, it can be so overwhelming. And so, and, and again, as you're saying, it's, it can be so hidden as well. I mean, even if it, if it becomes just a statistic, but people aren't aware. I mean, look, I wasn't aware, even though I knew that there were people who were going out and leaving water under bushes and things like this. And, and there were all kinds of people doing things along in these areas that are known path pathways for migrants coming into the U.S. But still, the question of like so many dead and how do you carve into something that big?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And also something that's so visceral when, when you present it visually. So we basically embedded ourselves with the search and rescue teams and the people that work at the medical examiner's office in the hope that we would be able to track a body from the moment of discovery all the way through the forensic identification process and then hopefully all the way back to a family. And as, as Robin can attest to, the, the statistics to make that happen were against us um i think quite a few people had tried that before we followed several cases i was there when the police discovered different bodies and skeletal remains over the course of i think four four to six weeks and the diani crystal body well we were we were very very fortunate in that his family was identified in a, in a relatively short amount of time within about three months of him being discovered whereas i, I think up to Seven hundred of the two thousand bodies uh, that have been brought into that particular medical examiner's office are still yet to be identified.
1: Well, Let me bring Robin into the into the uh, interview right now. And Robin, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Happy
1: to be here. Yeah, good. Good to hear your voice, and uh, really glad you could be here. And first, let me let me find out from you right away, is what is the Calibri Center?
3: The Calibri Center for Human Rights was actually developed uh, very recently out of the work portrayed in the film as the Missing Migrant Project. So our work starts with the desire to help families in their search for missing people and really... We're building the biggest database of, unfortunately, missing migrants last seen crossing into the U.S.-Mexico area. And we're comparing that data against unidentified remains catalogued by offices like the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. And then on top of that, we are trying to reach a broader audience and really tell the story of what's happening and produce research and data. Unfortunately, a lot of the conversation about immigration reform and the border is not fact-based, not based on evidence and history. So we're really taking the issue of the very severe human rights crisis of the loss of life and the disappearance of thousands of people on the border to shine a bright light on the failings of our current immigration policy.
1: Now, is that related to what compelled you to, to, to want to be part of this film? I mean, if Mark showed up to you and said, hey, I want you to do this film with me, what compelled you to say, yeah, I need to be part of this?
3: <laughs> Mark started visiting the medical examiner's office in 2009, and I remember when he first came into my office that I think we started talking just immediately for like four or five hours. We had a lot to talk about. I think the, the framework that Mark was using at that time even to approach the story was really looking at broad structural factors, looking at it with a human lens, but asking some of the, the more challenging philosophical questions about why are people coming, why are they willing to come, why are they willing to risk their lives, what's happening with the families, what's happening to the bodies, How how is this going on for so long? I mean, at that time, in 2009, there had already been a decade of deaths in the hundreds per year and still silence in terms of changing policy. So I was immediately very taken with Mark's approach, and I felt excited to work with him from the beginning.
1: Well, let's talk about this a little bit because you also have a sense of just how serious the situation is. That it's not just a few people here and there, but it's actually a very large question, it's a very mass question, and it's something that not too many people are really all that acutely aware of.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating that that people aren't aware of it. It's, it's one of the things anthropologically that I'm interested in is how how effective, basically, how effective this this discourse of illegality has been that. One of the most serious human rights crises is passing invisible and in terms of you know talking about visibility and invisibility I think that's one of the most interesting questions 6,000 people have died in the last decade attempting to cross the border and that number is believed to be quite low it's a border patrol count and border patrol is not always involved in the recovery of remains and it's really outside of their purview so in the film it's the sheriff's office it's many many other agencies that are involved in that process so the 6,000 number is uh, believed to be quite low there's a lot of decentralization in terms of counting, many reasons why that number is low. 2,000 people are missing and 6,000 known to be dead. So that number already is more than 40 times more deadly than the Berlin Wall was in its entire existence.
0: All right. So that was an excerpt of Michael Slate's interview back in 2013 with Mark Silver, the filmmaker of Who is Dayani Kristall? Um, We are here today on The Michael Slate Show bringing you some highlights from the crates of The Michael Slate Show to help you appreciate and to share with you some of these gems and also to remind you what we bring you, what Michael brings you every week on this program because we are in the middle of the fun drive. I want to say, in light of what we just heard, that at least 853 migrants have died at the U.S.-Mexico border in the last 12 months. So this. Um, human rights crisis. This devastating uh, story of Dayani Cristal, the restoration of his humanity, his story of just one of these migrants. This crisis has intensified since then and and multiplied, and it is getting worse. And I think Michael um, has been on the uh, the early edge of the curve of exposing this, bringing this to you, and bringing you the voices of people who are humanizing the the toll of this crisis for you. We're going to have a little musical interlude, Dirty Dozen Brass Band with Chuck D, what's going on? And then we're going to jump into another highlight from Michael Slate, um, where he talks to the author Douglas Blackman about his book Slavery by Another Name, the reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. It's an extraordinary um, look at Uh, really buried up until this book came out, a really buried chapter of U.S. history where we were told that slavery was abolished. But as you will hear in the interview, it was reinstituted in another name. Uh, That'll be Douglas Blackman right after the musical break.
4: What's going on when all them guns is drawn? Here's a memo. Remember, there's a few wars going on. A couple overseas and on my front lawn. When common sense was common and now it's all gone. What's going on? And that's going on. And what's going on? And that's going on. And what's going on? And that's going on. And that's going on. And that's going on. And that's going on. All blind, well, even a blind couldn't have seen her After Matthew Katrina new about it, about it, right here like it's Congo Square 82% of Americans don't go nowhere Now nonsense is dumbass Talk about snitching When crime's alright What's left is bitching Now you can call this hate. My people's radio stations, TV news, and all them one-sided views. Self-economics enforcement and education is what we need. But all the people still waiting. I ain't no quitter, just bigger. And no, I didn't say better. I don't care what year it is, don't call me no nigger. What's going on and that's going on? And what's going on and that's going on? And what's going on and that's going on? And that's going on and that's going on. And that's going on.
1: a little while ago i came across a book that i just have i picked it up and i was i was fascinated by the title i read a little something on it and decided i really had to get this book and it is one of the most compelling histories I've ever read. It's a history that really cracks something open for those of us who think we know a lot about what's happened, what's going on, especially around that era, Reconstruction in the South, people who are questioning where the oppression of black people in this country come from today, what's what's its roots. This book, Slavery by Another Name, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II by Douglas Blackman is a must read. It's an incredibly powerful book and something that really cracks open a whole new knowledge scheme, it's something it will really help you understand what's going on here. Douglas Blackman, who's written the book, and he's also the Atlanta Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal, and he's written extensively about race in American society. He's here to join us today. Douglas, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you, Michael, and thank you for your kind words about the book.
1: Every one of them are heartfelt. I sat up, and at points couldn't put it down. And You'll go into things with a certain precept, with a certain set of uh, things that you think you know what happened, and then something like this comes, and it just... Twist it. And I wanted to start off with this. At the end of your book, you talk about that you feel that that period of time between the end of the betrayal of Reconstruction, the overthrow of Reconstruction, the destruction of Reconstruction, and the World War II, or even maybe even beyond into the early 50s, you talk about that, how you feel that that should not be called the Jim Crow era, but rather that it should be called the age of neo-slavery. Can you explain that?
5: And there are two points that I'm really making there. One is, the, in some respects, the biggest demonstration that I hope the book makes, and that is that this period of time beginning at the end of the 19th century and continuing up into World War II, as a country, we have shared in a national instinct to have a sort of collective amnesia or, at a minimum, a minimization of the reality of the things that really happened to African Americans all across the South in that period of time. And one aspect of that minimizing the offenses of this period has been to call it the Jim Crow era. Now, I don't think that's what people intended when it began to be known as that, but in hindsight, that's fairly clear to me. Jim Crow was a character that was played in the beginning by a particular actor who would perform in blackface and do comedy routines that were meant to denigrate black Americans before the Civil War that became an incredibly popular form of entertainment after the Civil War and Jim Crow came to define the entertainment of that era and the symbolism of of blacks in the South I liken that to our calling the 1930s in Germany if we named that period of time after the most popular anti-Semitic comedian of Germany at that time. I think we would all recognize that that was an offensive way to to refer to that period in history. In the reality, what slavery by another name demonstrates, I think, is that in truth, at the beginning of the 20th century, a new form of forced labor involving hundreds of thousands of people and terrorizing hundreds of thousands of other people had emerged in the South that amounted to what I call neo-slavery, and we should call it what it was, the age of neo-slavery.
1: I have studied that period to a certain degree, and you know, I had some sense of what happened after the Civil War, that after the Confederacy was defeated, and there was a certain flowering of, you depict a sense of freedom when you speak about it in your book, and then it was, but what you're talking about, this age of neo-slavery, is there actually, you're talking about a whole new stage of slavery that came after Reconstruction, right?
5: Yes, after the Civil War, African Americans in huge numbers all across the South experienced an authentic period of emancipation. Now, it wasn't, you know, it was never as it really should have been. And it was a tough time and uh, a world of poverty and deprivation of services and great difficulty and great animosity between blacks and whites at the time. So it wasn't a perfect time, but it was an era in which millions and millions, and there were four million blacks essentially at the end of the Civil War in the South, And huge numbers of those people participated in elections. They were accorded the full rights of of being citizens, as guaranteed by the 15th Amendment. They had jobs. They had farms. They had employment of various kinds. Like I said, it was was a difficult, poverty-stricken time, but there was true emancipation and true freedom. But what began to happen in the South, particularly after federal troops were removed in 1877, And even more so, after another 15 years, when it became clear that there was no possibility that white northerners would ever send federal troops back to enforce civil rights, all across the South, the state legislatures of every state passed laws, which began to effectively criminalize black life and to create a situation in which African-American men found it almost impossible not to be in violation of some misdemeanor statute at almost all times, and the most broadly applied of those was that it was against the law to be, if you were unable to prove at any given moment that you were employed. And so vagrancy statutes were used to arrest thousands of black men, and even though thousands of white men could have been arrested on the same charges, but they hardly ever were, and then once arrested, the judicial system had been retooled in such a way as to coerce huge numbers of men into commercial enterprises as forced workers through the judicial system. And then thousands of other people lived in fear of having that happen to them, and that was part of how they were intimidated into going along with other kinds of coercive labor, like sharecropping and farm tenancy and many other things.
1: Give people a sense of the scope of this. In your book, you concentrate a lot on Alabama. Which I really enjoy the device you used. I really thought that was very powerful, the device you used. of sort of woven through it as this one character that you're, you're searching for really what happened to him and where was he from, his life before that, his ancestors, and what's happened since. But you unfold something that it concentrates a lot in Alabama, but the scope of this was huge, right? Both in terms of the numbers of people involved, as well as the spread across the South.
5: This was a phenomenon that by the beginning of the 20th century, in effect, as of 1901, every southern state had completely disenfranchised virtually all African Americans. There was no black voting of any meaningful degree still occurring in the South as of 1901. And every southern state had this Some version of this array of laws that could be used to arrest almost any black man who did not live under the explicit control and protection of a white man. And every southern state, in one manner or another, had adopted the practice of, rather than imprisoning the people who were convicted of these flimsy or fictitious crimes, of actually leasing them out to commercial enterprises for periods of one or two or sometimes much longer periods of time as forced workers and alabama was the place where the system lasted the longest in its most explicit form and was the most evolved in terms of how every county government and the enormity of the numbers of african american men who were leased by the state and in the case of alabama there were at least a hundred thousand african-american men between the 1890s and the 1930s, or about 1930, at least 100,000 African-American men were leased or sold by the state of Alabama to coal mines, iron ore mines, sawmills, timber harvesting camps, cotton plantations, turpentine stills all across the state. There were at least another 100,000, and I suspect many more. The records are incomplete, but at least another 100,000 just in Alabama, were similarly leased out of the local courts, just where a county judge in cooperation with a local sheriff would parcel out all of the prisoners that were rounded up uh, and brought to the county jail. And so at least 200,000, probably more like 250,000 to 300,000 African Americans just in Alabama were forced into the system just in the most informal ways and there are very well documented records of thousands of black men who died under these circumstances during that period of time and i document in the book the stories of men like jonathan davis who in the fall of 1901 left his cotton field to try to reach the home of his wife's parents where she was being cared for and would soon die of an illness and he was trying to reach her before she died uh, and on his way to the town 15 or 20 miles away where she was being taken care of, he's accosted on the road by a constable and essentially is kidnapped from the roadway and sold to a white farmer a few days later for $45. And that is something which happened I, in the book. I name dozens of people that happened to. It's clear that some version of that sort of kidnapping happened to hundreds and hundreds of other African Americans. And again, all of that is just in Alabama. And there were versions of this going on in all of the southern states. And so in reality, there's no doubt in my mind that hundreds of thousands of African-Americans had these events occur to them. And millions of African-Americans lived in a form of terror of this happening either to them or to their families.
1: Now, Douglas, when we talk about re-enslavement, I think there, there might be a sort of a, a subjective reaction to people saying, well, re-enslavement, was it really as bad as slavery? Give people a sense of the conditions that you've actually documented because they were horrifying.
5: Well, Green Cottonham, for instance, the character you referred to a moment ago, who much of the book is woven around the life of Green Cottonham and uh, the family of slaves and former slaves that he descended from and, and what happened in the course of slavery's resurrection and how it began to intrude upon the lives of of those former slaves and their descendants and finally how green cottonham is as he rises into adulthood at the beginning of the 20th century he is arrested in columbiana alabama outside the train depot in a completely spurious situation where initially it's claimed that he broke one minor law, and then later it's claimed that he broke a different minor law, and finally when he's brought before the county judge three days later, the judge simply, to settle the confusion, declares him guilty of yet another offense of vagrancy. And on the basis of that, he's fined $10, I think, was the actual fine, and then on top of that, he's charged a whole series of fees. Associated with his arrest, a fee to the sheriff, a fee to the deputy who actually arrested him, uh, some of the costs of his being jailed for three days, fees for the witnesses who testified against him, uh, even though, there, as far as I can tell, there were no witnesses. All of these things added up to effectively about a year's wages for an African American farm laborer at the time, and an amount that obviously someone like Green Cottonham, an impoverished, largely illiterate African American man in, in 1908. Uh, could not have paid. And so in order to pay those fines off as part of this system, he is leased to U.S. Steel Corporation, a company that still exists today, and forced to go to work in a coal mine on the outskirts of Alabama with about 1,000 other black forced laborers. And those men lived under almost unspeakable conditions in terms of that they worked much of the time deep in the mines in standing water, which was the seepage which would come out from under the earth they were forced to stay in that water and consume that water for lack of any other fresh water even though it was putrid and polluted by their own waste they had to operate in these unbelievably cramped circumstances If they failed, any man who failed to extract at least eight tons of coal from the mine every day would be whipped at the end of the day. And if he repeatedly failed to to get his quota of coal out, he would be whipped at the beginning of the day as well. The men entered the mine before daylight. They exited the mine after sunset. They lived in an endless period of darkness under these horrifying circumstances. They had little medical care. They were subject to waves of dysentery and tuberculosis and other illnesses, and it was ultimately one of those epidemics of disease which caused Green-Cottenham to die five months after he arrived at the jail in August of 1908. And those conditions, and far worse ones even, were incredibly common in the forced labor camps that by then had emerged all across the Deep South.
0: All right. So you've been listening to Michael Slate's 2008 interview with Douglas Blackman about his book, Slavery by Another Name, the re-enslavement of black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. So we're going to bring it a little closer to the present. We're going to do two things. We're going to have a quick musical break. We're going to hear Baraye, which has become a really incredible anthem around the world from the people of Iran rising up, who continue to rise up in the face of tremendous repression right now. So this is a rendition of that song that was done by John Baptiste on piano and the Iranian musician Murnan Mer- um in New York City performing. And then I'll come back and, and introduce the next segment. <music> for the people of Iran. Um, we're going to now do our final segment for the day. We're, uh, like I said, we're bringing it up closer to the present. You are listening to The Michael Slate Show. My name is Sansara Taylor. I'm the guest host again this week. And recently I had the honor of interviewing the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian. We've been featuring this interview on recent episodes of The Michael Slate Show. And we want to air for you a portion of this that is dealing with one of the most uh critical emergencies facing humanity right now, which is the war in Ukraine and the potential for this to spill out into open conflict, open inter-imperialist conflict between the U.S. and Russia, including nuclear conflict. You know, Biden not that long ago talked about the risk of Armageddon being closer than it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was a threat. And also the rivalry with the U.S. and China over Taiwan and in other ways. So um, Andy Z asks Bob Avakian about this, and we're going to go right to Bob Avakian's answer about the intensifying risk of open inter-imperialist warfare between the U.S. and Russia and U.S. and China. Let's listen.
6: Well, I think the most essential thing is this is con- contention among different imperialist powers. The U.S. has been the dominant power in the world. And Russia went through the whole thing where the Soviet Union imploded. It hadn't been socialist for a long time, but it had been pretending to be socialist, and then eventually gave that up, and the Soviet Union went out of existence. And Russia became very weak. You know, they had that uh, guy Yeltsin in there who could hardly stay sober for a day you know, as, a, as a head of state. You know, and, uh, and Russia became basically just uh, you know, a very subordinate to the US and to the whole, you know, quote, unquote, Western alliance. And ever since Putin came in, his whole program has been to reassert, you know, Russian, first of all, you know, Russian integrity, but also just Russian influence in the world, you know, as an imperialist power, which is what it is. It's a a openly capitalist and imperialist power. And it's, you know, trying to break out of the, the subordinate position that it's been in since particularly since the disintegration of the Soviet Union and so this explains what he's been doing you know he went into georgia and, and a number of years back you know and now into into ukraine and you know i think we could speculate but i think putin made some miscalculations that i think he felt that the us and its western imperialist alliance would make a lot of noise. Maybe they'd do some economic sanctions. But I don't really think that he understood that they would really throw as much into this as they have in terms. This is basically a war being fought by the U.S. with Ukrainian soldiers against Russian imperialism. And, you know, the, the, all the, the intelligence, the, uh, increasingly the planning, the heavy armament, the, the most up to date weapons this is all U.S. You know, and it's just the Ukrainians are the foot soldiers and the cannon fodder for this on that side of it. The US has openly declared that its intention is is to administer a defeat to Russia in order to weaken its overall challenge to US imperialism. So, you know, that's why they've thrown everything they have into it. You know, just to go back for a second, I think Putin also miscalculated thinking that he could send in a sort of lightly armed troops and quickly take over the country. And he probably preferred to do that from the point of view of, like, then you have more of a country, you know, that's intact rather than one that's devastated. And that was a miscalculation because already, you know, not only were the Ukrainians putting up a resistance, but the U.S. was already throwing a lot in to help them. So the U.S. has openly declared that that its goal is to administer defeat to Russia. And on the other side, you know, Putin is very clear he's not going to accept a defeat. For the same kind of logic, it's imperialist gangster logic. Neither side can afford to, you know, to suffer a defeat. So what do you get then? Well, Putin talks about okay, now this territory that you're referring to that they've annexed through these ridiculous referenda. You know, by the way, just speaking of ridiculous referenda, I have to say this once again: world-class hypocrisy from the U.S. imperialists. You know, they went into Iraq, you know, occupied the country illegally you know it was a violation of international law you know just a you know blatant international war crime they went into iraq got rid of the existing government put in a puppet government and then held elections while their troops are occupying the country. But that was a free and fair election, don't you know? You know. But now when Putin does the same thing in in, the, in these sections of Ukraine, that he's the next. Oh, this is a, you know a sham. This is you know everybody has to denounce this. I mean, can't you see what what you know how ridiculous this is This is anything but a free and fair election. Unlike the ones we had in Iraq when we were occupying. Of course, they don't really say that, but that's the reality of it, right? So, you know, Putin has annexed these sections of, of the Ukraine, and he has made a statement that any, ta- any threat to the integrity, you know, of Russia or to the territory of Russia, any threat, you know, he will use all weapons available, which means, and he repeated it twice and said this is not a bluff, it means that that puts nuclear weapons on the table, even if you're talking about two. Tactical, or nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, these have tremendous devastating effect. Let's not pretend there's some minor thing, oh, just tactical. You know, they have tremendous devastating effect. So he's m- taking that stand. Now the U.S. is saying, well, if Putin does that, then we'll, you know, I've seen some military analysts on the U.S. side, we'll go in and destroy all of his forces in Ukraine, knock out his fleet, in the, you know, and so on and so forth. And then, what do you think Putin would do? In the, you know, they're saying, "Oh, well, we won't go nuclear. You know, even if Putin goes nuclear, we won't go nuclear. We'll just destroy all of his troops and his fleet. you know, devastate his fleet." So, what is Putin going to do in a situation like that? This is what I point out in this article. You get on this very deadly trajectory of escalation where neither side can accept a defeat, and pretty soon you're at the threshold of strategic nuclear weapons that could do devastation to the entire world. And you know, vast numbers, if not the out, you know, right humanity as a whole. So this is what we're up against, and the big problem is, I mean, I just have to comment. You know, like you got all these people that pretend that they're progressive and whatever, and they're all going right along with U.S. imperialism and this. You know, and under the banner that Biden and all these people are putting out about, this is a world. You know, not this is a contest in the United States and throughout the world. Between democracy and autocracy, Trump is an autocrat, Putin is an autocrat, Xi Jinping is an autocrat. Of course, they don't talk about their own autocrats, you know, like <laughs> the heads of the government, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, you can go down the list, you know, that are all part of their alliance. You know, Hungary, you know, Poland, what have you. You know, those are all autocratic governments. But there are are autocratic governments, like they said about the Shah of Iran back in 1978 when the uprising was occurring, which eventually led to his overthrow. There was an article that said the Shah, you know, in one of the major newspapers in this country that said, "The Shah of Iran may be a despot, but he's our despot." So you know, our autocrats are OK, but the ones that are challenging our dominance in the world and our ability to plunder and slaughter people all over the world, which is what they've been doing forever, those autocrats are no good. This is not a battle, just even looking beneath the surface. You know, you can see that this is, this is a battle between imperialist powers, you know, all of which on both sides, you know, have whole histories of horrendous atrocities and, you know, base themselves on vicious exploitation of people and oppression of people all over the world. This is what's at stake. You know, and I just have to say, you know, certain people who have postured as being progressive have come out and made the most outrageous statements in the context of thing. And I'm going to say it, little Stephen, you know, coming out and saying, you know, well, we're, we're more powerful than Russia. Why don't we just bomb the shit out of them? I mean, what are these people thinking? You know, they're so committed, ultimately, despite their progressive pretensions, they're so committed to U.S. imperialism that they've almost lost their fucking minds. You know, what do you think is going to happen? You go bomb Russia, You know, why don't we just wipe out all their Air Force? I mean, this kind of talk is like totally reckless and irresponsible. And when it comes from people with so-called progressive pretensions, it's all the more disgusting. I just have to say that. And people need to get up off this American chauvinism. You know, this country, you know, look, you know, and some of the same people who will rattle on about the whole history of this country and slavery and all that. Turn around and you know and are, are either silent or openly supportive of the same system when it goes into the international arena to enforce its parasitism of plundering and exploiting people all over the world because I guess they have a little bit of a sense you know it's like somebody once said living somebody once wrote saying living in this country is a little bit like living in the house of Tony Soprano. You know that there's a lot of goodies coming in. You don't know exactly, maybe you're not really entirely up on what Tony Soprano's doing out there, but you kind of have a sense that whatever he's doing, and however you know, f***ed up you might think it would be, is allowing you to have all the goodies that comes from living in the house. And that's what the f-ing, that's what the attitude of a lot of these American chauvinists, you know, so-called progressives, you know, and people need to get up off this and wake up to what's actually happening. And what they look at, the, you know, you think the history of this ruling class in this country is somehow divorced from what they do in the world as a whole. You know, do you think their nature changes when they go out outside the borders of the U.S. and all of a sudden they become, you know, uh, really kind-hearted people? You know, who are carrying out charity around the world? You know, yeah, they do some charity to cover up the crimes that they're committing. I mean, you know, we came forward, me and people of my generation, came forward during Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam War. And you know, I did a lot of study of that, and so did many other people, to, to see what was actually going on in that war. And you know, we discovered that, in, and this is why a lot of the American troops rebelled, because of the atrocities they were being ordered to carry out, I mean, wiping out whole villages. You know, with old people and children, just wiping them out, shooting babies, and I'm not exaggerating. Go look into it if you think I'm exaggerating. You know, they killed between two and three million civilians in in the country of Vietnam, which at the time had a population maybe of only a little more than ten times that. You know, and you know, the troops. You know, not only were they you know turning whole sections of women in the capital of Saigon and other places, you know, forcing them into prostitution but they were mass raping women you know in these villages all you know just you know you can just read up on this you know and so th- this has not changed the nature of this system that did all that in vietnam has not changed you know and what has changed is some of the people opposing them are not people you can support like islamic fundamentalists who carry out all kinds of atrocities of their own although on a scale they can only envy what the us imperialists do on the scale that they do it you know or russia and china you mentioned china you know first of all nancy pelosi goes to taiwan if supposedly everybody doesn't challenge the insistence by the chinese government in beijing That Taiwan is part of China. Supposedly, even the US policy doesn't challenge that, even though they have all these relations with Taiwan. Well, Xi went over there and essentially said differently, you know, and basically treated Taiwan as an independent country, you know, and it was a deliberate provocation. And you know, I'm not defending the Chinese imperialist rulers. We're very clear that they're also capitalist imperialists and have been since capitalism was restored in China shortly after the death of Mao decades ago in 1976. But nevertheless, this was a provocation. And then it's followed up by Biden making a point of having himself interviewed where he can say, you know, answer the question. Well, you know, if, if, if the Chinese, I meaning the you know, the Chinese on the mainland, the People's Republic of China, attacks Taiwan, will the U.S. troops... In other words, US armed forces get involved on the side of Taiwan. He made a, I mean, you know, look, when you interview the President of the United States, you don't ask questions the President of the United States doesn't want to ask, OK, unless you're some hostile force. And this reporter was not. So then Biden has the opportunity to say, yes, we'll get involved militarily. Well, that's a provocation against China. And it's actually an invitation, if you want to look at it in a certain light. It's a, it can be seen as an invitation to them to attack Taiwan quicker. You rather, you know, because the US would be less set up to get involved. So, you know, this is the dangers that are going on. You know, and you know, all this ridiculous stuff, people sticking their heads down or, you know, I stay in my own lane. You know, you think if there's a nuclear war, it won't touch your lane? I mean, c- come on, let's get f-ing serious around here. You know, you think if US and China go to war, your, your lane is going to be somehow, uh, you know, I'm just going <laughs> along in my lane. I mean, people need to wake up and get serious. This is a contest between oppressors, the world's leading oppressors, with the US number one. Yes, USA number one oppressor and plunderer in the entire world for decades. And you know, it's up to us to oppose our own ruling class. Yes, we also oppose Russian imperialism. Yes, we also oppose Chinese imperialism. But, but we're not living in Russia. And we're not living in China. And if we were living in Russia and China, our primary focus would be on opposing our ruling class where we were. We live in the United States. All these crimes committed by these imperialists are done in our name. Supposedly, you know, the army goes out there to protect our freedoms and blah, blah, blah. They go out there to plunder people so that US imperialism can suck the blood of literally billions of people. And if you think I'm exaggerating, Go on the website RevCom.us, and read the articles by Raymond Lada, which get into the parasitism of U.S. imperialism, how it is an international exploiter and super exploiter of people in the global South or the Third World, the poorer countries of the world, and what this has to do with what the U.S. looks like internally, and how it thrives. You know, even the consumer goods that people you know have. Are cheapened, you know, more affordable to the massive population here because of the way that people are viciously exploited. More than 150 million children in the third world who have no childhood. Hundreds of millions of women like those in Bangladesh working in factories, making the stuff that goes to Walmart or whatever. You know, people all over the world in similar situations this is our it is our responsibility to oppose this primarily while we also oppose these, oppose these other imperialists this is where we live this is being done in the, all these massive crimes and now the threat of a you know existential threat of nuclear war a threat to the very that's what existential existential means threat to the existence of the of humanity all that's being done in our name and idiots like you know, Steve Van Sant aside, now I'm giving him a break by saying idiocy. You know, We have a responsibility to first and foremost oppose our own imperialist ruling class and what it's doing. And more generally, I've made a statement, and I'll make it again. The masses of people in the world, and this is very acutely and urgently posed now, the masses of people in the world cannot any longer afford, it was always terrible that these are the people ruling the world. But it's now acutely, acutely posed, we can no longer afford to allow these imperialists to dominate the world and to determine the destiny of humanity. They need to be overthrown as quickly as possible.
0: All right. So that was Bob Abakian being interviewed by myself and Andy Z on the Revolution Nothing Less show. You can see the whole interview at youtube.com therevcoms the revcoms. And I encourage you to do so. We've got some time left, so I'd like to play this.
7: Many people say we need religion to be able to endure, to survive, to keep from going crazy, to continue to struggle on, even to have some moments of joy and glimmers of hope in a world full of so much cruelty and brutality, heartbreak and heartlessness. But what if the world doesn't have to be this way? What if we could live in a world where never again would a parent have to fear for the life of their child just because of the color of their skin? What if we... What if we lived in a world where never again, with that soul-wrenching experience that never leaves of having to bury your own child whose life was stolen by a brutal thug with a gun and the backing of the powers that be? What if? What if being black no longer meant living in a white supremacist society that continually assaults you in your very being and very sense of worth, constantly subjects you to terror, openly or in more subtle ways, and forces you to face the constant danger that you or your children will have your life snuffed out at any moment for doing nothing but being? What if your humanity really mattered and were considered precious? What if this were true of all people of color and of immigrants? What in fact, if all people were just people of different colors, and there were no distinctions and discrimination and persecution and brutality based on what nationality or race you were? What if there were no such thing as immigrants? What if we all lived in a world community of human beings, without borders and tanks and guns and planes to enforce them? What if women could walk down the street and look every man they encounter straight in the eye and fear nothing? and not be made to feel. And not be made to feel that you're on display and to be evaluated by how you sexually titillate them. What if no more women were ever again battered, raped, assaulted, denied the right to control their own body? What if people who were different in their sexual orientation or just in the way they went through life, instead of being discriminated against and bullied, were valued for their difference? If that were seen as part of the great diversity of humanity. What if there were no more one part of society exploiting the others, and those exploited had no choice but to enrich them in order to be able to live themselves, working their whole life away under conditions of this ruthless exploitation. What if we didn't have to live in a lopsided world where a small number, in a small number of countries have to accumulate tremendous wealth by exploiting the great majority, and the conditions of the great majority are desperate. Look at the world, look at the phenomenon of Ebola. There's been a lot of concern about Ebola, rightly so, but way too much hysterical fear about whether a few people here might get Ebola, and not nearly enough concern about what is happening to the people in Africa. What if there were no more wars for domination and plunder? What if there were whole different relations among people, valuing each other's humanity? What if there were different relations to the environment, protecting it and providing for future generations instead of despoiling and ruining it? What if we could have a whole different outlook on life and on the future instead of one of dread? and one of desperately striving just to make it. Now to paraphrase John Lennon's song, Imagine, you may say I'm a dreamer, but this is not just a dream. It is something for which there is a definite basis in reality and it is up to us, together with people throughout the world, to make it a reality.
0: I want to thank Henry Carson for producing, Gary Bakoff. My name is Sansara Taylor. You've been listening to The Michael Slate Show. I'll be back next week. <laughs>
8: بیو که وقت تاختن تو دل دشمن بدون ترسه میدون جنگ داره و ندار، اثر قمطبار مثل فشنگ قطار میدون جنگ تیغه شمشیر عشق جهامت و زین کنو جنس seper وفا پس اتحاد مرگ اختلاف افتخار تکونم به هم هموطن بشم تک گاهش شروع خروش و تقیان مردم چشمسار پس سمزدایی بسد بازو حزب باد در تفکری که داری با هر دین و این کنارمون بیست سالا کنارتیستادیم مانع ره خشم هزار اروسیه تا شورشی شورش کمرش انقلابی داریم عرب و آشوری ارمنی تو کمن مازنی سیستانی و بلوچ و تالش و تات و آذری کرد و گیلکی و فارسی قشقایی ما اتحاد رودهای دریایی ورزشکار و هنرمند دستفروش تا کارس باز محصل و معلم مهندس تا کارگر میکنیم که دیکتاتور و بوساز حق زندگی آزادی میچکم تا پای مرگ شونه به شونه پا به پا دیوار دفاعی بابر همبستگی مثل ایمان الهی مثل مسخ مثل مجنون بی باکسینه چاکی میران تومه موتیه این بیگانه ها نیست میدونه جنگه اثر رنگی اصدی بیا که بدون تو یه خونه لنگه میدونه جنگه بیا که وقت تا تو دل دشمن بدون ترسه میدونه جنگه دارا و ندار اثر غم و مثل فشنگ قطار میدونه جنگه تیغه شمشیر اشت و زین کن و جنس سپر وفا دستای گره تو دست هم جهان تو دست ما سانشوی قهرمان تا خیابون و رف پفار ایران و فروختن رفیق رف خونت به باد وقت میدونه جنگ خوشیدو و گرفتن کاب خوش بشم نذاریم براشون نه تلا من موج دارم پشتبانم به ایرانه به میلیونه بده کاریم به این خونه آزادی رو آبادی رو بده کاریم شادی رو واسه دیکتاتور و شغالاش و حامی بند و گرفتاری رو میدونه جنگ جان ازم پا با جنم با هم تهش رو میبینیم چون فت میکنیم میبینید که جنگی شدیم چه نسلی طولید کردید که ریز و دروشش هم زده تم بی باکه تشه جور جرازادی از زندگی سیرا به شکوه ما اتحاد تون سیاهه شبه میشیم تو شب کابوس میشیم براتون در پس این دوزخ فانوس دیدیم درانسو دار جل دارم نیست نصر کوب و نقانون نره میکشم و میام کن جوی پرها یا هون من میدونه از هر رنگی هستی. بیا که بدون تو یه خونه لنگه میدونه جنگ، بیا که وقت تاختم تو دل دشمن بدونه ترسه میدونه جنگ، دارا و ندار از هر و تبار مثل فشن قطار میدونه جنگ، تیغه شمشیر اشت شهامت و زین کن و جنس زپر وفا میدونه جنگه, جنگه